0: Welcome to The Trajectory Africa. In this episode, Track 5, our guest artist is Gushe Nisi. Gushe is a principal at Secha Capital, which she joined to marry her finance skill with a deep passion for impact. Prior to Secha, Gushe worked as an assistant lecturer at the University of Cape Town and interned with Act in Africa, a design thinking and entrepreneurship development program, as well as with Goldman Sachs in investment banking and with PWC in auditing. In this conversation, Gushie and I explore the SME investment opportunity, how it's similar to and different from tech, and the ways in which tech-enabled SMEs and tech ventures play complementary roles in the broader venture ecosystem in Africa. This conversation picks up on a key thread from the previous track, Track 4, how retail commerce in the form of SMEs is a backbone of Nigeria's B2B market. In this episode, we take a broader look at that opportunity. Gushe, welcome to The Trajectory Africa. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank
1: you so much for having me, Tayo.
0: So you and I hadn't met prior to my inviting you to join me for this episode, but I became acquainted with Secha Capital and your focus on SMEs a few years ago, thanks to Andile Mazugu at African Tech Roundup. He'd hosted Ruchil Vallabh, one of Secha's managing directors in 2019, for what I think anyway is an aptly themed discussion about whether African founders should accept or reject VC's hypergrowth doctrine. And the idea of African market realities being mismatched to the conditions that enable this doctrine is a topic we have explored extensively in Chasing Outliers, which is a report on early stage investing in Africa that I co-authored earlier this year. But in any case, over the years, I've heard murmurings from VC adjacent investors who lamented the lack of focus on the massive but perhaps underappreciated opportunities in the SME space. So between that and the research, I knew I wanted to do an episode exploring the relationship between SMEs and tech-enabled startups, and Secha was top of mind for that. But it was after I stumbled across your article, An Arsenal of Operator Investors for Africa, that you co-authored with Brendan Mullins, Secha's other managing director, that I discovered you and decided to reach out. So I thought we could start by learning a bit more about you so, Gouche, can you please share with us a bit about your background and how and why you decided to join Secha?
1: Yeah, so my background is quite interesting in the sense that I see myself as a blend of two countries. I've lived between Eswatini and South Africa. Eswatini, also previously known as Swaziland. And just from that time of being between the two countries, studying between the two, I was always fascinated about the stock difference in living and how the economies were set up and how there was just a little bit more opportunity in South Africa. Needless to say, I pushed that to the side and did my undergraduate in finance and accounting. And after that, really seeing myself ending up becoming a chartered accountant, that realization or the remembrance of how I grew up came up. And so I ended up changing and going into my master's in development finance. And that really opened my mind to the opportunities around developing economies, but also specifically growing SMEs and using that as a catalyst to help grow economies and and grow countries. And so I was really interested in the impact investing space. And that's when I I stumbled across Setra on a YouTube search, actually. And yeah, that's how I got to know the team. And what I really like about being at Setra Capital now in the role of operator investor is the combination of my passion that I described previously but also my skills coming into play and have been with the team now for almost uh, two years. And yeah, Thank
0: you so much for sharing that. It's quite a powerful combination or opportunity when you can combine your skills and and passion. So clearly your skill set is quite deep. Having studied accounting and development finance and the passion is also quite deep given the fact that you've experienced two different contexts in Eswatini and South Africa. So let's talk about the idea of SMEs being growth engines for economies in the context of what Secha Capital does. So what is Secha's core thesis? How would you describe the SME investment opportunity you're set up to capture? And how actually does Secha define the term SME?
1: Yeah, sure. So Secha's really started by asking this question of, How can we tweak fund economics to write smaller but impactful checks into ignored sectors and most uniquely, which is what we do, is get high-powered human capital into these SMEs every single day? And so that is really what underpins what we do. And we see the opportunity being these boring, ignored sectors that need high-powered talent, so the human capital, which is, which is me, actually, uh, stepping into these SMEs to, to help them grow, and having check sizes or investment amounts that are what they need to still help the entrepreneurs keep a majority share of their businesses, And so in our context, we would say an SME, some people would say a small growing business, but these are companies that are making about $0.3 million to $3.3 million. And they're in this middle of, they're not a startup anymore. So they're not getting that early fund investment. And they're also not big enough for really big checks and they're right in the middle needing the support to be able to to take them to the next level.
0: Really interesting. So you mentioned smaller impactful checks and high-powered human capital. Why is a high-powered human capital so important?
1: So what we are finding a lot on the ground is that these SMEs are not able to afford people with skill sets like myself to work for them or people like myself who've just finished their university degrees are not interested in joining such small companies because of (laughs) the financial implication and not being able to have a competitive salary. And so there's this gap that we see in both sides and the importance of having this high powered human capital is the skill sets are needed to push the company to the next level. A lot of times the SMEs have been brought from beginning to the current stage by just the founder driving almost all of the highly skilled requirements of the business. And the business is now at a stage that it can't move forward with just one person at a high skill set And so there's this management gap that needs to be solved for.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's an excellent segue to maybe chat through the article that you co-authored with Brendan Mullen for the Stanford Social Innovation Review, an arsenal of investor operators for, for Africa. So what was the core premise of that piece and what motivated you
1: to write it? So I actually, Brendan had written an article before around the Marshall Plan and joining the team, reading through that and thinking, I think there's a different way that we could do this. And so my piece was actually a follow on on that. You know, people often reference the Marshall Plan and that it required outside resources to rebuild an economy. But I was choosing to take a different approach or a different World War II plan and actually use local resources in order to grow the economy and relying on internal resources. So how are we able to grow local businesses and sectors, lessen our reliance on developed markets and have a plan to really build youth and create employment opportunities for Africa, And so the piece was really centered around that value add of an operator investor stepping in to help find these SMEs because there are so many SMEs on the ground that need the support, but we just haven't found them. And then funding. And so funding in Secha's context is through Secha Capital, the operator investor would invest in this SME, it wouldn't be on their own account, and then the operator investor going in and being on the ground to help grow this SME. Very
0: interesting. So let's take that in the context of what Secha actually does. So can you fill us in on how Secha's structure and approach is designed to do what you describe, which is essentially to locate SMEs and provide them with the small impactful checks that will help them grow and then also infuse them with the high powered human capital that will take them from the founder driven shop to something that is more scalable and set up well for growth.
1: So how we approach it is we start off from an investment thesis and we have certain sectors that we're focused on which would be agribusiness fast-moving consumer goods yeah so those would be the sectors that we're focusing on and we would build a thesis saying what do we see as the most ideal company to invest in within our context so what does a great healthy snack business in south africa look like and what characteristics does it have and what would be the ideal growth plan for that business And after designing that, we go out into the market and we do what I had mentioned, which is find those SMEs. So that's using our network, that's desktop research, that's just finding all these options that are out there and bringing those small businesses in a pool, reaching out to them and finding out if they are interested in getting funding and getting support. And then we would fund that business. And we are focused on investing a minority stake or getting a minority stake because we believe that the founder knows best in how to run their business. And so after we have put in our investment, the operator investor would go in to help grow. And that is really designing a nine to 12 month plan alongside the founder of the business in which we are implementing growth strategies that we designed during our investment thesis. So implementing marketing tools, implementing inventory efficiency tools, just as a few examples. And those tools are now where we're, you know, using tech enablement to really help scale the business. But that would just be the, the basic process that we would follow. And, and after that 12 months, the operator investor would take a step back and now play more of a partnership role with the founder, checking in at specific times, but also a lot of times just there to take out the fires. I would say COVID was one of those fires. Having an operator investor who knew the business back to front like I did in a time such as COVID was imperative to keeping our businesses alive in that challenging time.
0: Brilliant. So i Definitely want to step into discussing tech enablement, as in how SMEs can use tech. But let's chat about the impact of COVID, actually. So within your portfolio, what did you see? And and feel free to use a specific example. But what challenges did you see? And how were you able to work with your portfolio companies to navigate that?
1: Yeah, so I'm based in South Africa now. And what we found is that we have had very, some people would say, extreme (laughs) lockdown um, (laughs) implemented just to keep everything under control. And so in a way, you know, in the beginning, it was a complete standstill. And because our everyday at Secha is to work with our SMEs, we were also at a standstill. We couldn't just carry on looking for pipeline. And so what happened was my focus company is Rush Nutrition, which I came in as operator investor when I joined the team. I immediately joined the team once again on a day-to-day basis. And that looked like, first of all, getting authorization to get an essential service certificates so that Rush could still be open, setting up transport for the staff so that they would be able to travel in a safe environment. And then being able to have access to the back end of the accounting system meant that I could do all of the applications for SME relief funding And what that meant was our founder, Lara of Rush Nutrition, could spend her entire time just focusing on operations and keeping the business going. And, you know, I'm proud to say that throughout this COVID time, we haven't lost any jobs. We've been able to keep all of our businesses growing. But it really has been challenging because Rush Nutrition is a healthy snack brand And so nobody is in grocery stores picking up snacks anymore. And that's when Secha really played a role in, okay, so let's grow our contract manufacturing abilities and get new clients in that sense. And that's really helped the, the entrepreneur grow the business and see the business as broader, but still have that support from someone who is, finding all sorts of affordable funding to keep the business alive.
0: Yeah, it's quite impressive that you didn't lose any jobs. And I'm assuming is due to the fact that you were able to sort of zero in on points of highest leverage quickly and figure out how to keep those businesses afloat. Another thing I'm curious about as it pertains to your model is how you navigate the relationship of being an operator and investor in someone else's business. Because stereotypically, there's this notion that founders, particularly SME founders, tend to be reluctant to cede control, both literally in terms of giving up equity, but also in terms of running the business. So the question here is essentially, how do you navigate that dynamic of entering and being an active participant in a portfolio company's business?
1: Yeah, (laughs) that's one that we we get often because, yeah, that, that is very true. I think the one thing that we do from the beginning before we even invest is finding out from the founder if this would be valuable to them. We are not trying to force this operator investor into their business, but we want them to see this operator investor as part of the team. So as much as I was hired by Setcha Capital, I would say that I have stood in meetings on behalf of founders if they were not able to be there. And that's because the founders bought into the value add of an operator investor from the beginning. And the team is really, it's young, I'm (laughs) willing to go that extra mile for these businesses and take them on as my own. And so when a founder is seeing someone as passionate about their business as they are, that really opens up their desire to have that person involved. You know, I am not sitting in on board meetings and um, coming in, maybe two times a year. But it's every day building up that relationship and and actually being an employee and and providing insight from an investor perspective. But also I understand the business on the ground. So I'm not bringing solutions that are unattainable. And so that's really helped build that bridge to get our founders on on the right track and, and happy with what we do. So Gushet, you'd mentioned
0: while describing Secha's thesis that two of your priority sectors are agribusiness and is it FCMG or fast moving MFCG, <laughs> fast moving consumer goods. So I'm curious as to why those two sectors are primary for you? And generally speaking, what sectors or opportunities you see capital flowing into and to what other sectors may there be less capital flow?
1: Hmm. So I actually missed two sectors that we we focus on. So we call it the traditional sector. So agribusiness, agribusiness, fast-moving consumer goods, FMCG, light manufacturing, and, and healthcare. And so we are focusing on those sectors because, you know, CETA started with the idea that if we can grow SMEs, we can help address the problem of unemployment, which is huge in our country. And so we believe that these sectors are critical to creating employment opportunities and having investment into a light manufacturer and localizing manufacturing of different products creates employment, which can really make a difference on the ground. And what is really interesting is just seeing how different people are choosing to invest. And what I've been seeing is a lot of investment going into tech sometimes what i would call buzzword sectors and these are sectors that are perceived as very high growth for a number of reasons and that capital is fantastic you know we we need to grow that ability and that sector on the ground but a lot of times it's not solving for our immediate problems which is Employment currently and creating opportunities for people to have income in our continent and in my context in South Africa,
0: right? And and so, in thinking about your emphasis on creating employment opportunities and other impacts, how scalable and or replicable would you say such as model is?
1: It's so funny, Teo. I think we get this question often because <laughs> it is so human capital focused, you know, and there's one of me, I can't be in Lesotho right now. So I think what our model is, is that it's it's modular. It's using and leveraging local resources and getting human capital from that local place and Sector focus is also local and then scaling the business. And so, for example, you know, Fund 1, we've been focused on South Africa. And in Fund 2, we are expanding to Southern African countries. And so if we were going to invest in Lesotho, which we are planning to do, it is finding an operator investor in Lesotho who will be running the investment and using such as lessons learned from the 10 investments we've done in Fund 1. One, in order to help grow the business in that country, we need people who understand the context the best they can. Just besides me not being able to speak SUTU as much as I'm in South Africa and can speak a local language, which is Siswati, but that is a barrier in itself, me not being able to speak the local language. But finding someone who can connect in that way and then providing them with the toolkits to be able to scale the SMEs in their context is exactly what we're focused on. So it's all about replicating and passing on all the lessons learned to others.
0: That's a very important point, actually, two very important points. So one is the importance of leveraging locally based Expertise. That's something that came out quite strongly in the Chasing Outliers research, both from the perspective of investors as well as founders, how important it is to have founders and investors who are locally knowledgeable and ideally locally based. But the other point that I think is really useful is the idea of leveraging lessons learned. I mean, obviously those lessons learned have to be contextualized, but that mm-hmm. was the basic premise also behind Chasing Outliers. To sort of ask if you're starting today as an aspiring fund manager, what can one learn from all of the other or all of the previous aspiring fund managers that you can use as a foundation to determine how you should move in, in that journey, what your thesis should be and such. But you've already pointed out how difficult or or let let me flip that a little bit, how important it is for SMEs to receive the type and size of funding that is most impactful. And I think it's fairly well established that SMEs suffer from insufficient access to finance. So if that has been your experience, and I'm assuming it is because you're finding and funding these companies, why do you think they're not sufficiently funded? And in what ways do you think the opportunity to invest in SMEs might be misunderstood or underappreciated?
1: Sure. (laughs) I think there's, there's so many barriers, and it really depends on who's seeing it from which perspective. But a lot of times what we're seeing as a big hindrance is what We'd say the gatekeepers. You know, for example, one of our investments is in Haretown, which is a wigs and weave company, which is a huge market, especially in South Africa. But a lot of the funders don't understand the market. And so they're not investing in that space. And so it's also an understanding of products that are appealing to majority of the market, which can sometimes be a key to why these SMEs are not receiving the funding that they should be. And then other times, it's all about the more attention. Our first company, Native Child, has grown 100x with no additional rounds of capital, but it doesn't receive the same headlines as a Series C, even though the returns are are there. And so it's also um, a matter of the the language and the people that are speaking about these smes that that plays a difference in what is limiting the funding going to these companies
0: it's interesting that you point out the difference in attention paid to the opportunity irrespective of the actual returns. I remember having a chat with a founder who is incredibly frustrated by this dynamic, because although she technically had VC funding, her business was tech enabled, but it wasn't a, a quote unquote tech business. I mean, it was more mm. of a an import substitution play. And what she said was, I'm working really hard here to build what could be a, a potentially impactful business, but I will never get the level of attention and support as, you know, company X to my left, who may be also tech enabled, but not tech, but has spun the way the business is being run to look like tech. And so now this founder gets all of the the support and attention, and I'm sort of sitting here struggling. So you, mm-hmm. you kind of alluded to the answer to, th- to this question, but Why do you think that is? Are there other reasons apart from, quote unquote, tech is hot right now, for lack of a better way of putting it?
1: Sure. I mean, it is. I I did touch on it a little bit earlier that it's the buzzwords, but I also think it's at times perception. We are finding ourselves in Africa trying to replicate models instead of designing our own and creating businesses that we need and are specifically designed for us. And so a lot of times we are finding founders, creating businesses, using them, the keywords so that they can get the funding that they need because funders want to see those keywords in order to give them the funding, but that's right. not actually what we need on the ground. And so it's a really challenging space because we want our tech companies to grow because that helps us as a continent. But at the same time, there's a lot of SMEs like your friend that you mentioned that are frustrated because they are solving a real problem that can help grow their local economy. But the funders are just not interested if it doesn't have a specific word next to it. I I don't want to specify which ones. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I guess we won't be in the business of calling people out on on this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> However, I, I really do think you raise a really critical point in terms of the idea of designing what is fit for purpose for context versus replicating models developed elsewhere. That is actually one of the key premises of Chasing Outliers to sort of suggest, hey, there may be ways in which cutting and pasting doesn't make sense given the realities, conditions and needs of the large number of diverse African markets. And in fact, there may be a way in which the evolution of company building in certain sectors' kind of suggest this, I might be overreaching, but there was a time at which, and I can't remember which report I read this in, but there was a time during which there were so many founders flowing into payments, fintech specifically. Mm. So the rate of formation was high. The rate of failure was also high. And now the influx of founders into payments specifically has settled down. And one might assume, or I'm going to assume anyway, (laughs) that some of that had to do with the buzz and the excitement around payments. And so you're going to see The influx of capital and activity into sectors where there seems to be interest. And to some degree, that is valid because at least from an investor perspective and certainly from a founder perspective, you want to be able to see your venture grow from beginning to end. And it's more likely for that to happen when Mm -hmm. there are investors and other value providers engaging. But but let's, let's jump into or dig into the opportunity you already created for us to discuss the interplay between SMEs and startups. So as I've mentioned before, I've heard a fair number of anecdotal murmurings from investors who have felt that there has been too much emphasis placed on tech startups specifically, while there's a massive pool of high-yield, low-hanging fruit in the world of SMEs. But at the same mm-hmm. time it's becoming increasingly clear that digitizing analog or informal activity in Africa. For example, digitizing the ordering and restocking of retail SMEs is a huge opportunity. And so I'm again I'm really curious about the relationship between SMEs and tech startups. So from your perspective you mentioned SMEs as job creators. Do SMEs solve similar or different problems? than tech startups with an African economy. So for example, is disruption the domain of tech startups while SMEs provide familiar or quote unquote traditional goods and services?
1: So I, I think they solve the problems together and that the tech startups and traditional goods and services, SMEs, are actually within the same space. But, When the traditional businesses that are offering goods and services, for them, it's about tech enablement that is contextual, specific, and it's fit for purpose. And actually, these traditional goods and service companies, they're great businesses with really good management teams, but They lack the time and and resources to really leverage these tech startups and the capabilities that they can get out of it. And so I kind of see it as we can't have a thriving, growing tech startup space without people to buy, without people Mm. to pay. And so we can't be putting everything that we have into just one avenue and we throw the words around like systems thinking. This is exactly one of those situations where these things are connected to one another and it shouldn't be a competition of either or, but we need to see the same amount of interest in both of these sectors because without our tech startups, our traditional businesses are not going to become more efficient and internationally competitive. The same as without our traditional businesses, the tech startups are just not going to have Customers, whether that is the SME as a customer or the people who work for the SME who are earning an income who are going to use the tech. And that's yeah, that's how I I see it.
0: That's a brilliant perspective for a couple of different reasons. Firstly, you mentioned systems thinking and the idea that it's not going to be either or, it's and/or both. And as part of the reason why I'm quite interested in trying to understand the venture landscape as a system. So what role or roles do SMEs play? What role or roles do tech startups play? And and how do they play together in a thriving economy? So I very much appreciate you putting the conversation in that context. And secondly, this idea of needing companies or people who are able to pay for the goods and services that tech startups provide. In a couple of previous episodes, we talked a lot about consumption enablement. So what is going to stimulate production? It's the ability of people to pay for goods and services. And at this stage of the development of the venture system, A lot of the payers are SMEs, in fact, and we'll get into that in in a little bit. But you also rightly mentioned just now and then previously the idea of SMEs being tech-enabled. So you clearly think that it's important for SMEs to use technology, but could you describe Mm -hmm. why it's important, how they would benefit, and maybe some of the challenges they might encounter in using tech?
1: I think tech enablement is critical for SMEs. It's actually one of the key things that we find missing when we invest in our SMEs that we've invested in. And you know, I said earlier that it's about moving these small businesses to the next level. And that's all about scalability and efficiency. And that really can't be achieved in a low cost way without these SMEs using this tech. And the biggest challenge around this is that there's a lot of technical risk in implementing this new tech. And these SMEs don't have very big IT budgets to just try something out. And so, first of all, the tech startup space growing is creating more options for the SMEs to try out, but also the SMEs then having the funding to try out this tech is really important. But I, I don't see our SMEs being able to grow to the scale that we need them to be to really put a dent in the market and make a difference without tech. It has to be there in order for us to scale. And for me, most important is local tech startups, because they're going to create products for our SMEs. One thing that sometimes frustrates us as a team is looking for a a tech solution and someone presenting us something as a solution, and they don't even have the product in Rands, which is the South African. And then I'm spending half of my day just trying to <laughs> change it and figure out which exchange rate I'm using at that time. Wow. But those are small things. If there's a local tech startup that's creating something for the SMEs that I'm working with, it's going to lower cost. It's going to help with scalability. It's going to help with efficiency and Yeah, it's it's a really important component for what I do. No, it makes
0: complete sense for solutions such as the one that you described to be customized because the cost (laughs) and the time (laughs) invested to customize is non-trivial, particularly to your point when you're dealing with SMEs that have limited budgets and maybe a limited threshold for trying something new, one, and two, something that doesn't deliver value immediately. But I'd, I'd like to go back to your point about scalability and efficiency. Can you talk through a little bit how technology or what type of technology can contribute to those outcomes?
1: So I think the key types of technology that we find as needed is tech that's going to help with management systems, processes. So just being able to manage the business better. Sales and marketing is key, that's a huge one. And tech, that's going to provide us with as much data as we can get to be able to make sure that we're targeting who we say we're targeting. And so I just want to give an example. You know, one of our businesses, Hairtown, they do wigs and weaves that they provide to the market. And it's a company that's actually a blend of online sales, but also in-store. And that's common for us. As much as we're online and we're pushing that, we still have a big market that still wants to go into the shop and interact with the product and i don't see that changing very soon but we need tech that's going to help us be able to be efficient and manage both and having tech that's able to collect data in store and online in order to help us with our ordering decisions is very important and so that's that's what i've been seeing
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. I've certainly heard or been privy to a lot of discussion around the importance of data-driven insights and the impact of data collection for intelligent decision-making, but also the customized delivery of solutions to the end user, whether the end user is an SME or a startup. But you've kind of already alluded to the idea of these Tech solutions needing to be value additive in a non ambiguous way. So so let's talk about value creation more broadly. You've already alluded to your perspective on this, but arguably, in the worst version of VC, investors can make money without actually creating companies that generate lasting value. How would you compare the value creation opportunities that SMEs have and can exploit versus those that? tech startups have and can exploit?
1: Sure. (laughs) So this is, yeah, this is a challenging one. SME's value creation is easily visual to me. You can quickly see a market when all of a sudden there's way more local products in play. There's employment creation. And yeah, the key there is making sure that you can see that easily on the ground. And while tech startups context, although very high valuations, it's much more difficult to see the impact and the immediate solving of problems. And and that's in our context. A lot of times, the one that we have said often is around employment. That's really easy to see in an SME space because that is on-the-ground value creation, and you're moving someone from one position to the next. But I do think that they both have a role to play in terms of the value creation that they're bringing to the space.
0: So the idea of, let's say, tech startup impact being diffuse is, is a useful one. Useful in in the sense that, given that you described the impact of SMEs as being visual, as in you could see, okay, you walk down the street and there are X number of shops that are providing locally produced and sourced goods. I think, Mm -hmm. at least insofar as I understand it, the premise for value creation with tech startups is, in some cases, somewhat similar, not the same, but somewhat similar in the sense that there may be certain fundamental goods and services products in health finance, education, and the like that historically have been too expensive, too difficult, inefficient to deliver. And by using tech, you're able to deploy these products and services at a cost that is more manageable, both for the venture and the end user. And Basically, tech is is a foundation for enhanced distribution, so you can actually reach customers that you weren't able to reach before. So that's the case for fintech and financial inclusion, for example. What are your thoughts on that premise? Does that ring true to you, or would you maybe view the potential impact as something different?
1: I mean, as you were speaking, I'd say I'm, I'm quite aligned on on all that you mentioned. Seeing it on the ground, it is exactly that. It's the new opportunities being created that would have ordinarily not been possible for a lot of people on the ground. That's really what tech is bringing and has helped in that way. The gap that I sometimes find is the opportunities are there Are we, number one, making sure that the people who have these opportunities can afford it? So the tech is there, but can the person pay for it? And if they can't pay for it, are we creating a reliance mentality? And so those are the concerns that I have, but there is a necessity to still grow the space And it is clear that, yeah, there's a lot of things, especially around financial inclusion that have made a huge difference on the ground.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate the emphasis on affordability. That's actually something I've been noodling on and continue to noodle on just in terms of trying to get a firm grasp on the, the the size and purchasing power embedded within these consumer markets, which is part of the reason why I've been really interested to dig into the idea of enabling consumption. And one key aspect of enabling consumption is increasing income. So what you'd mentioned earlier, which is about the role that SMEs play in providing consumers who can actually pay for goods and services. So it's a bit of a virtuous cycle that I think is really useful to focus on. But in seeding that virtuous cycle, obviously, you've got to have SMEs that are growing and profitable and scaling and, and the like. So mm-hmm. from your perspective, from what you've seen, what does success actually look like in terms of growth, profitability, and scale for the types of SMEs you invest in?
1: So growth for us is seeing our SMEs. The dream is everywhere. (laughs) So really creating channel access for them that they ordinarily wouldn't have had because they're just too small and there's these big most of the time international companies that have taken up all of the shelf space and being able to hopefully we are patient capital so exiting at a higher valuation but to companies that our SMEs want to have on board you know we want the SMEs to be able to grow in the next 10 years and then get an offer that they just can't refuse because it's going to open even more channel access for them. And so that's really the, the growth that we're seeing. And over the past five years, I think it's been exciting to see our SMEs growing from 3x to 100x growth rates in the portfolio, which is big and, and really exciting numbers, even in the tech space. But it's possible to get that kind of return from businesses that people might consider boring. And it is possible to exit those businesses profitably if that's what the investor is looking to do.
0: Yes, I'd I'd actually very much like to discuss that bit. So you mentioned, and this is really important because theoretically, right, if you study finance, you go to business school and and you, you have that module on mergers and acquisitions. You know, you'll have, <laughs> you'll have that module yeah. that says synergy is really important. There has to be complementarity between the two firms that are merging or the the firm that is acquiring the other. So my question here is essentially how do you ensure that that alignment and complementarity is in place and how do you even set up an acquisition for an SME, what is that process like? And how do you get to the desired outcome?
1: So because we, in our context, we're taking a minority stake. So for us, the first thing is buy-in from the founder, which I think is important. You know, a lot of times we're having investors coming in and having the final say on a possible acquisition in the future. But the person who started this business from the ground up should have a big part to play in that decision in order for it to happen smoothly. And what we're seeing it as is that this new partnership that's forming, whether it's a merger or it's an acquisition, it needs to be mutually beneficial. It needs to be a relationship where both of the players have an interest in this new structure and are going to benefit most ideally, it would be if I am in the natural hair care space, then the, the merger should be with someone who's going to open international channel access for me to sell my products. That's worthwhile for me. And so really seeing those MA that we learned at business school more as a relationship building process where we both can get what we need out of this conversation and not just have one person who's swallowed up and we even forget the name of the brand that used to exist. (laughs) Yes, it's
0: interesting. So it seems obvious, right, that if two companies are coming together, there should be win-win. And it's obvious until it's not because the damage that can be done when values don't align, when end goals don't align, when processes don't align, can be quite significant. I mean, businesses can actually be heavily damaged or destroyed in that. Well, I I shouldn't say necessarily in the process of merging, but just in the process of seeking uh, alignment. So something that seems quite obvious is actually quite nuanced and really, really important to to get right. But
1: Uh, Sorry, just to add on that, something came to mind just around Because we are as such a part of the conversation as an investor, sometimes our founders of these SMEs don't see it from the perspective of an investor. And so having an investor on your side actually makes a difference when you have these bigger check sizes and more scary meetings. Mm. Um, But having an investor who's walked the journey to get you to this position and then looking to merge with someone else, I think brings a different perspective in the room. And we found that some of our SMEs are even just like, nope, I'm happy with just having Setcha on board for now. I can already see where this relationship is going to go and I don't want to <laughs> go there at the moment. So I do think we, we kind of play a trial run for them before they have to make those bigger decisions where you can't really determine the outcome. That's such
0: a great point because in as much as there's a lot of learning on the investor side in terms of one would assume that the founder is the expert on his or her business, there's also a lot of learning on The founder side, particularly if it's an SME founder who hasn't necessarily set out to build a a hyper growth tech business, you know, your desires and assumptions about what your trajectory is going to be are a little bit different. So they may need support in, in sort of navigating the journey of building relationships with other equity providers. And so the fact that Seisha can come in and fill that gap and serve as that trusted advisor, I would imagine, is incredibly important. But I I want to to touch on another interesting point that you made about the range of returns for SMEs. So what you quoted, 3x to 100x, is very much in the realm of venture scale. And that is within your own portfolio, obviously, but... How well do you think SMEs are performing generally, quote unquote, in the wild? And what would you cite? And and again, you've touched on some of this, but if you have additional insights to share, what are the major barriers to growth and performance for SMEs? And do those barriers actually differ from what tech startups confront?
1: Yeah, I I think we are seeing a lot of growth on the ground. I I can't quote the numbers for others, but we're we're seeing that if you're in the traditional SME space, there's great opportunity and really untapped markets. And again, it's just jumping in and helping these SMEs improve on efficiency. One small thing coming in, making a difference, and you're able to see these businesses grow, And there's so many untapped markets in South Africa that we haven't even touched on yet. And so (laughs) I think we're seeing that happening. And that's why, as I was quoting, you know, the 3x to 100x growth, it's being excited to buy early, which is what we do. Get in when it's early. Mm. Don't wait too long. And then you can really see the benefits and getting in there with that small business. And that will give you the returns that you're looking for. I think the the barriers maybe for SMEs and their growth is yeah, I think I've touched on it around just capital, I think also capacity of founders and and there what I mean is a small number of the people that are part of the team are the most highly skilled in very high positions. They don't have a lot of support in those positions. And so having the ability to hire more people really makes a difference in them being able to take a step back and just focus on strategy once again, instead of having to be super operational as they would have ordinarily had to be. And I think around the the tech startup space, it's growing. It's it's really exciting. But I think a big difference there that I'm seeing is that a lot of the tech startups require quite a few rounds of funding before we start seeing such high returns. Right. While the space that we are in, it's a matter of just working capital, small amounts in comparison, but it can trigger so much growth because it's opening a marketing budget that ordinarily the small business didn't have to be able to grow. And so those are the key differences that I I see in terms of the growth and performance. In terms of our African tech startups and African SMEs, they both have that potential for that high growth. It's always just a matter of timing and how much each needs in order to be able to grow.
0: Yes, that last point about how much each needs actually <laughs> has invoked a visual in my head. And I'm not necessarily really a visual thinker, but I have these two hockey stick graphs in my head. And mm. so I see the one with SME taking a smaller amount of capital to shoot up the hockey stick, whereas the tech startup is taking more capital to shoot up the hockey stick. There's obviously no data to back up the- <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that that rendering in, in my brain. But I think it's mm. interesting anyway to think about the leverage of the capital. So how much do you generate in terms of growth, productivity, et cetera, from X amount of capital in an SME versus a, a tech startup? It's interesting to, to think about. Another thing that I think is interesting to think about is support. So A couple of the things that you mentioned that are key in terms of providing support for SMEs. So you mentioned channel access. That's something Mm -hmm. that comes up quite a bit with tech startups. So how critical it is to figure out distribution. In many cases, that might be riding the rails, so to speak, of large companies like telcos or banks in order to reach consumers if it's a consumer-facing business. You also mentioned the idea of buying in early, which is a huge challenge, I think, with tech startups as well, getting investors to actually take the risk they're supposed to take, given that that's what the the (laughs) job is, you know, to see the potential and invest in the growth. So the question is essentially, do in fact tech startups and SMEs need different types of support? And if so, what are their differences or how are the needs different?
1: So I, I feel that it's actually the same. <laughs> I think that the support that tech and SMEs need, it's around finding human capital that's going to be specific it's going to be tailored to help support the businesses grow. And I, I think that having someone on the ground to help grow, whether you're in tech or you're an SME, is important. Maybe in tech it would look different. I need to go into Rush Nutrition's factory and check up on the staff, and that would look different. But having human capital dedicated to the team in order to help these businesses grow is really important. And in the SME space, and I'd say similar to tech, it's not one size fits all in order to help them grow. And so, yeah, I, I actually think it's, I would see it as the same for both of them.
0: Yes, it's interesting. I, I agree. I mean, there are definitely different entities with arguably mm-hmm. different goals and different potential outcomes, depending on how, how you define outcome. But I do think that some of these fundamental inputs to supporting ventures are, in fact, common in, in, in some ways. So... Let's talk about, because you'd mentioned quite presciently that it shouldn't necessarily be SMEs on one side of the street and tech startups on the other side of the street. (laughs) Ostensibly, they are part of a larger venture ecosystem. And so one of the more, at least for me, thought-provoking insights from the Chasing Outliers research is that African tech startups often have to build or fix supply chains or infrastructure to deliver their core solutions. So for example, if a tech startup is taking on the challenge of helping SMEs like the ones you support stock up, those tech startups might also end up helping them for example, finance and manage that stock, which suggests that there are ways in which tech SMEs and digital startups may operate as part of the same value chain, which you've already alluded to. So have you in your work encountered examples of this where SMEs and tech startups work together in the same value chain? If so, please share an example mm-hmm. and maybe provide some insight into the opportunities and challenges that this commonality or shared space
1: presents. Yes, yeah, so... I think we've touched on it just in terms of the fact that they are in one value chain and both need each other. And so I'll use Hairtown again. I had mentioned that, you know, this is it's an online store that sells wigs and weaves, and it's also in store. And so one of the challenges that we were finding in there was the management of stock, exactly that. How do we make sure that we have One central space where we're keeping all of our product, but they're distributed correctly to stores. And also when it is online, the customer makes an order, we actually have what we said we were going to have. And this is quite challenging and something that we wouldn't be able to solve without tech. That combination wouldn't be possible without the management systems that we've implemented to put all of this together, so that there's one central place that all these decisions are being made. And the biggest ones, it has been just around sales and marketing and the power of having ads that are popping up in front of users and then them being able to to interact with that and then us being able to collect the data and then connect with our customers beyond them just purchasing. And so, I mean, it's just... I can't even imagine us being able to work the way we do and understand our customers the way we do without having tech as part of our process. And the biggest thing for us has been the revenue benefit, which I've spoken about um, and we assume, but also the cost decrease in all of this. It's going from having to lose a lot of customers because we're not efficient in the way that we track how product is moving, to being able now to serve even more customers than we would have served previously. And I do want to just touch on the the challenges because it can sound perfect and why is not everybody doing this? (laughs) But on the ground with our SMEs, there is a really big challenge with the time of adoption. To get new tech in. Our founders are used to doing things a certain way. They don't have capacity to be looking for these new systems to make the management of stock much better and so it takes some time to get them on board with things like this. And the other one which I had mentioned earlier but it it always comes up for me is something that is designed for my market, you know, mm. I, I need a product that is going to acknowledge the fact that I'm in South Africa and that the space between my shop and where it's located and someone in a rural area is very far. And so how are we going to track my product all the way there and make sure that that customer gets it on time and in the right condition? And so it's those tweaks that need to be made in the tech space to ensure that it's as local as possible.
0: Lots of really important points here. So, yes, I, I think in the context of, let's call it sustainable sourcing, the transparency of the supply chain is really important. So understanding where it started, where it ended, did it end where it was supposed to in the condition it was supposed to, et cetera. But in this case, it's more about basically quality of delivery to to customer, particularly when that customer is farther away and maybe operating under different conditions than urban customers might be operating mm-hmm. under. And that that's incredibly important. Another key point here, I think, is again, doubling down on the idea of reducing cost, because fundamentally, as we discussed before, you've got to be able to enable consumption. So you've got to enable consumers to be able to purchase a product. But then it's also just important from a profitability perspective for the startup. Business models that may not be viable under certain cost assumptions become viable once those costs are manage and and optimize. So as we start to wrap up here, there's just one small point I'd like to come back to from the top of the conversation. So you'd mentioned that one of the key differences between SMEs and startups has to do with maturity. So the type of SME that you are investing in, you mentioned, is no longer a startup. So what I wonder, though, is that whether or not the difference between SMEs is really just a function of maturity, as in how long the business has been in business, or is it also a function of the nature of the problem solved and what it intends to do? And I think we've kind of moved in the direction of an answer to this question, but I just want to bring it back again to sort of lead toward a final note or final answer, if you will. <laughs>
1: can, I, can I reframe it? Please, please um,
0: reframe. Yes.
1: Maybe I might be, I don't know, maybe contradicting myself. Let's see. I see it as SME being this big umbrella and underneath it is different players. And I would actually call them either traditional goods and services or I would say tech And they are all falling under this umbrella of small businesses that have the potential to grow. And if we're seeing it under this big umbrella, then I'm hoping that funding will also be looking at the umbrella and allocating it to all of the players underneath that.
0: I love that so much. And so in as much as, again, I'm not a visual person, (laughs) I can see the umbrella, I can see the relationship between the different types of SMEs under the umbrella. And perhaps more importantly is the idea of if you see these ventures as existing on a continuum, it's all part of the same venture ecosystem. Certainly there are nuances in terms of the types of funding and when they get it and whether it's debt and equity and and such, but there's no cause for you know, leaving one set out, out in the shade, for lack of a better way of putting it. Really quite like that visual. So this has been a really fantastic conversation. But uh, as we like to say, all good things eventually come to an end. So as as we close, <laughs> I'd like to wrap up with the Trajectory Africa's signature closing questions. And so... Fundamental to what this series is about is mapping the trajectory of African VC and tech. So based on your experience as an SME-focused investor, where are we going? So what is the destination? What does it look like? And what are the key indicators that we are on our way or not?
1: So, I mean, key indicator for me is just the excitement that investors have around the great value in Africa that we've all always known about is getting a little bit more attention, which is really awesome to see. I'm seeing a much more localized ecosystem, a whole bunch of players who are realizing that the solutions are actually inward and that there is a lot that we can learn from the way we've been doing things. And I think for me, the big one is just everybody leveraging off each other and seeing that we We come together, like I mentioned, this umbrella picture that you running a tech is not separate to me as a traditional goods and service company, but actually when we're all under the same umbrella, we're able to really grow our economies and spread the funding, hopefully, across the ecosystem so that everybody is able to grow the way that they need to grow.
0: Yes, that that's spot on. I think it's incredibly important to embrace this concept of being collaborative, existing in the same ecosystem and using leverage. The only way to use and this is a very tired metaphor, but the, the only way to make the pie bigger is to kind of acknowledge <laughs> that it's in fact the same pie and to mm-hmm. think about how the, the collaboration and acknowledging points of commonality actually creates benefits for, for everyone who contributes to baking the pie. I think that's something that, again, that, that seems obvious, but is a little bit more difficult to execute in practice, but is, is still critically important. And so, on that note, I'm going to ask you the final question, which is related to our other <laughs> mission with the Trajectory of Africa, which is essentially to crowdsource the soundtrack to African tech and, and, and venture. So, please, if you will, share with me the tracker song that you selected and explain why you selected it.
1: Sure. So, I selected a song called Gonke by Seba Kapstad. And this is a group that started off in Cape Town, if I'm not mistaken. And I really feel that the song captures where we're going as a continent of just wanting more. So Gonke means everything. And the song actually says, I want it all. Like I want all the opportunities that are out there. That's what I'm looking for. And it's a really cheeky way of just saying that there's really nothing limiting me and, and all of us of dreaming of having all the opportunities that are out there. One of the lines actually says, I want a legacy that will outlive me and restore all my people and remind them of life's lovely And so, yeah, I think that's the perfect song for what I'm hoping for. And there's a mixture of language. So I do hope the listeners will enjoy that and have a little (laughs) taste of South Africa.
0: Wow. So, I actually, this is odd, but I, and I probably shouldn't be admitting, I might have to edit this out, but <laughs> I actually got, chi- <laughs> I actually got chills when, when you describe the message of the song. A- and I'm not sure why, but maybe it's partially because there's a way in which the age of COVID feels like an age of scarcity, an age of need in some cases, an age of of great suffering and desperation. And so to think about a song that literally says, I want everything. I want it all. And I want it (laughs) for the benefit (laughs) of restoring what belongs to me and my people. I See, I'm getting it again, is an incredibly powerful message and one that is so apt so appropriate for the continent just given the historical legacy I really really very much appreciate you for sharing that track it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on this show today thank you so much for shedding light on the massive opportunity presented by African SMEs thanks to all of you who are listening and I hope you'll join us again for track six you can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts until next time